This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I'll kick us off. Three Billboards came out in 2017. It stars Frances McDormand as the mother of a girl who was raped and murdered. It's been more than half a year since the tragic event, and the police still haven't made any arrests. There's been a recent scandal in which a young officer is alleged to have tortured a black suspect. There wasn't enough evidence to convict him, so he stayed on the force. This has the mom deeply resenting the police. So, she rents out three billboards on a seldom-used stretch of road. The billboards read, Raped while dying, still no arrests. How come, Chief Willoughby? The chief, played by Woody Harrelson, is well-loved in Ebbing. As it turns out, he does care about the case, and he tried his level best to solve it, but the DNA evidence didn't match anyone they had on file. With no witnesses, there was little the chief could do to find the culprit. The chief has been looking after the young officer, played by Sam Rockwell. The officer isn't the brightest bulb in the box. He struggles with alcoholism and is prone to rash, violent decisions. The chief knows the officer is troubled, but he holds out hope that the officer will figure his life out and become a better man. The officer and the mom swiftly develop an enmity. The officer loves the chief and wants those billboards taken down. He tries to pressure the mom by bothering her and her friends. The mom holds the officer in contempt. She thinks he's racist and stupid and a drunk and a bad cop. The situation worsens when the chief, who is sick with prostate cancer, kills himself to avoid a long, drawn-out illness. The officer assumes the billboards drove the chief to kill himself. He breaks into the advertising office, pistol-whips the man who rented the billboards to the mom, then throws him out a second-story window. The new police chief immediately fires him. Shortly thereafter, someone lights the billboards on fire. The mom assumes the arson was committed by members of the police force. Under cover of darkness, she uses Molotov cocktails to set the police station on fire. Unbeknownst to her, the recently fired officer is inside the station, dropping off his keys. He flees the burning building but suffers severe burns to much of his body. The officer is taken to the hospital where he is placed in a room with the advertiser he threw out the window. Even though the advertiser is uncomfortable around the man who assaulted him, he shows the officer kindness. The officer is moved by this gesture and a letter left to him by the late chief. In it, the chief tells the officer that he believes he's a good person deep down, that he can learn to overcome his anger and to think things through before he acts. When he gets out of the hospital, the officer makes an effort to solve the case. At a bar, he overhears a man bragging about a crime that sounds very much like the crime against the young girl. After taking note of the man's license plate, the officer baits him into committing an assault, allowing the officer to collect some of the man's DNA. In the meantime, the mom discovers that the police were not involved in the burning of the billboards. Instead, the billboards were burned by her ex-husband, a former cop himself, he never agreed with the decision to put them up. It doesn't help that their surviving son is getting picked on at school by kids whose families are friendly with the police. Neither the father nor the son like looking at the billboards or being reminded of the girl's fate, and both would rather see them taken down. So, when the officer comes to the mom and tells her he's found new evidence, she feels bad about having wrongly assumed he was the culprit, about having burned him unjustly, 
in revenge for something he didn't do. But the evidence does not check out. The DNA from the man in the bar does not match the DNA from the scene of the crime, and the man from the bar appears to have a solid alibi. He was out of the country when the crime was committed. Nevertheless, the officer feels sure that this man did rape someone, even if he's not the particular rapist they've been looking for. He suggests to the mom that they might go to the man's home and kill him, and she takes him up on it. But while they're in the car, they seem to have second thoughts. The film ends inconclusively, with the crime unsolved and with the pair unsure whether they are going to commit murder. There are other subplots along the way. The mom is romantically pursued by a dwarf, played by Peter Dinklage. He covers for her when the police ask her about the burning of the police station. Afterwards, he asks for a date. The mom agrees only reluctantly, and it becomes clear to the dwarf that she is ashamed to be seen with him. When he confronts her about this, she claims that he forced her to go on the date. He vehemently denies this, and is so thoroughly offended that when she offers to reschedule the date for a better time, he refuses. I liked this film quite a bit when it came out. It's a film about the assumptions we make about other people's intentions, about our tendency to make enemies too quickly on the basis of too little. Once we pigeonhole others, we overlook their positive qualities and assume the worst about them. The officer and the mom are both trying but failing to perform their roles well. Each views the other's mistakes as forms of intentional malice. The mother, unable to let go and accept what happened, puts her son and the chief through great shame and embarrassment in a fruitless quest to find a killer who cannot be found. The officer is burdened with a small brain, a demanding mother, a penchant for booze, and a tendency toward impatience and wrath. Both commit violent crimes in a bid to uphold a sense of justice. They get stuck in a pattern of mutual escalation, and it is broken only when the mom learns the officer was not guilty, and when the officer is confronted with the advice of the chief and the kindness of the advertiser he abused. It's a film in which nearly everyone, with the possible exception of the rapist, is doing their best, and yet no one's best is remotely good enough. But rather than condemn all its characters, the film shows them all some level of clemency. It is very much a film about the value of turning the other cheek, in part because we never know whether people really are as bad as we think they are. People's intentions are fundamentally unknowable, and when we think we know why people do the things they do, this leads us to escalate conflict when we could, and often should, de-escalate. For instance, it is often assumed that we can know what Vladimir Putin's intentions were when he invaded Ukraine, that they can be surmised from his statements, or his actions, or the words and deeds of the people in his circle. But if you take seriously the idea that we can't be sure what's in Putin's mind, and he can't be sure what's in our minds, the mutual suspicion that leads to war and frustrates diplomatic solutions is easier to understand. What he does makes us suspicious, and so we take action that makes him suspicious, and that causes him to do things he previously may not have planned to do. We may think he always planned to do those things, and try to read these new actions as reflecting back on his original intentions, but that's an assumption, and it's one that makes us even more suspicious and induces us to do things we previously did not plan to do. So, on it goes. This applies not just to matters of war, but to matters of love, in the mom's mind, the dwarf covered for her to blackmail her into going on the date. He was always bent on going out with her, and she experiences his dinner invitation as highly coercive. But in the dwarf's mind, he helped her because he is a nice guy 
who genuinely likes her. It is only when it becomes clear that she views him as a blackmailer that he becomes angry and points out that he didn't have to help her in the first place. The assumption of wicked intentions becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Often when we treat people as if they are up to no good, this causes them to behave worse than they would have done if we'd given them the benefit of the doubt. When they behave badly, we think we are proven right, but it was our suspicion and hostility that brought these same things out of them. The quickest way to make a man act like a creep is to assume that he is one from the start. We human beings tend to live up or live down to other people's expectations. In the same way, it is only when the officer learns just how much the chief believed in him that he is able to start to become the person the chief hoped he would be. Prior to that, he lives down to the low expectations everyone else has for him. The other characters treat him like a poor, stupid, abusive, drunk racist, and so he doesn't aspire to be anything else. Some may feel this film is overly optimistic about the sheer degree to which suspending judgment and subjecting people to higher standards can bring better behavior out of them. But in recent years, we have been too quick to write off other people on the basis of their mistakes, on the basis of the ideologies and groups with which they have become associated. If we give more people more chances to defy the stereotypes we associate with their groups, to learn from past mistakes, and to correct previous unhealthy patterns of behavior, we may, from time to time, be pleasantly surprised. So let's hear what Helen has to say. Yeah, it's a very interesting film. And actually, on second view, I don't know how much I enjoyed it the first time I watched it, but watching it last week for this episode, I thought it was um, fantastically done. So this is a film, obviously, by an Irish writer and director. And this is sort of received idea that um, Freud once said that only the Irish can't be psychoanalyzed. And even though this is probably not true, but there is this sort of idea that um, there's something in the Irish cultural imagination, which is sort of has already come to terms with the real shitness of reality. And obviously, psychoanalysis helps us um to cease fruitless mystification and face up to reality as it is rather than we would want it to be. And then um, in that, uh, in, in coming to terms with the antagonisms and contradictions of reality, building something better and more productive for ourselves. Um, and often our, um, when we're too caught up in, in certain, sometimes, you know, we need um, things like religion and, and imagine um, um, fantasies and fantasies are very positive, but things, things to keep us going because life is very, very difficult, but it's in the, in, in the um, uh, undoing of uh, repression towards uh, what life is really like that we can build something more productive. Um, but yeah, so there is something extremely tragic about this film and it's, it's tragic in, obviously it's, it's sort of, um, it's almost like a chamber piece and it's, it's quite, we're, we're dealing with, with aspects of reality that are very, very, very shit. Like this is a mother whose um, daughter has died, been raped and uh, brutally treated in that rape, sort of, uh, you know, uh, the, the murder is horrendous. And um, she feels guilty because um, she could have potentially prevented this by allowing the daughter to borrow her car. And, the, the, you know, these are these are aspects of reality that almost no one should have to deal with. And that the policeman, the uh, chief Willoughby is dying of a pancreatic cancer. And he's very young, has a young family. And these are aspects of reality that, you know, no human should have to bear, and yet we do. Um, Camus, I mean, so the Mercer and the Stranger has a rant at a at a um, uh, uh, at a priest when he's in prison after um, uh, killing 
killing someone and he says you know there's there's no there's no person the only class is the privileged class so in a certain sense you know humans are a privileged class as in we are the ones who are born but in being born we have to bear a huge amount of um unfortunately often inevitable tragedy because the nature of being born is to die and for everybody around us and everybody we love to leave us and it is really really horrendous and no one should have to bear it and yet we do um so and you know this is not to be moralistic about about uh not being able to come to terms with this because i think in a way you know perhaps what what makes life worth living is the creative ways in which we deal with having to um live in this reality um so you know just confronting these issues is is not enough but actually there is something um productive in sort of avoiding um these truths but sort of in healthy kind of ways but i wanted to talk about um a certain kind of utopian thinking that i think this film captures because i think often because you know we talk a lot about marx in this in this and hegel in this podcast um and the idea of sort of futurity and like um the i you know sometimes that that we we aspire to create a utopian world in the future and this uh, utopian world in the future leads us to um hold hostage our own present because because precisely we are all born of contradiction we're thrown into this universe that only exists because of antagonism um you know there can be no perfect world um if there was a perfect world it wouldn't exist you know it's it is only um through antagonism that we that we that we have this this world at all and so when we project a utopian future which we can't have instead of getting it we sustain the fancy that we could get it by shooting ourselves in the foot or creating enemies but it's not only future utopian thinking that holds us hostage but also utopian thinking in terms of all other possible worlds except for the world that exists now including if only i made this decision then if only i had done this in the past so there can be utopian pasts utopian futures utopian alternative realities where we can imagine ourselves being the happy person if only something hadn't happened to us or we'd made another decision and i think this is um you know this this film is de- dealing with retribution and forgiveness and a sort of a chain of events that is caused by this um inability to tolerate a decision and an imagination that in another possible world um these things wouldn't have happened but of course there is no other possible world why well, I, i mean i i don't know maybe there is who knows but there isn't another if it were to exist there is no other perfect world that could exist so in any alternative version of reality the same contradictions and difficulties would exist it they may not be the death of one's own child before one dies but there will be inevitable horrendous um factors and in this um this drama what happens is the characters instead of being able to tolerate the contradiction of their own decisions but precisely because of this potentially utopian su- sustaining of another possible universe there is a need to scapegoat another who um you know in a sort of paranoid schizoid kind of like um project uh, projection onto the other bears the responsibility for that decision so you'd rather experience the other as guilty than confronting one's own implication in a decision which is obviously horrendous but this is the freedom of being a human that we 
exist with a form of agency in this world that is inevitably tragic. And whichever direction we choose in the fork on the road, it will end to a certain degree in the same tragedy, not the same flavor of tragedy, but a tragedy nonetheless. So um, I think that this is not about, you know, responsabilization for one's own actions, as in if one um, was able to be more philosophical about one's own decisions, then, you know, so it's sort of a hyper responsabilization relative to one's own agency, but rather an understanding that agency is absolutely horrendous. Freedom is terrifyingly, painfully, um, it comes with enormous stakes. And some, you know, often blame comes out of not being able to position one's own self relative to one's own agency. Um, so, yeah, I think that this film really interestingly deals with uh, utopian thinking, not in terms of an alternative future, but an alternative world. All right. Let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah, thanks for that. I um, I just want to apologise to listeners for my my voice. I'm I'm suffering yet another will, winter uh, illness, not quite as bad as the last one, but uh, you know, so my my voice is a bit uh, vague or conflicted. Um, yes, this film I I hadn't seen it before, although I had wanted to. I I've maybe seen the trailer at the cinema or something like this, and. Uh, you know, I'm a big, a big fan of uh, Frances McDermott. I'm probably saying her name wrong, but you know, she's a very kind of establishment. Um, you know, she's a serious um, actor, um, and I, I found this film. I, I, I very much liked both of your interpretations, and I, I agree with them. I, I, I found this film slightly kind of heavy-handed in a, in a strange way. I mean, of course, it, it, of course, the. You know the the topic is sort of very serious, and and there's kind of a lot of poverty. It's about small town America. It's about a certain kind of economic situation, as well as the the kind of terrible crime that's been committed. Um, and I and I take I take both of your points very well, and in, in fact, it makes the film seem much more interesting <laughs> in retrospect. Um, and then I found it. I suppose that the one of the things I I did appreciate about it was the the unlikable quality of many of the characters i mean including the the mother who is um you know by any standards kind of sort of belligerent aggressive confrontational um she she's completely non-diplomatic she's i mean you know borderline offensive to the peter dinklage character i mean in a way even though it should be manifestly clear that he covered for her committing a serious crime which which should have landed her in prison i.e the burning down of the the police station um but nevertheless i suppose in the midst of this unlikability of course you are also very moved by her quest for justice and i i think one of the the main scenes that maybe hasn't been picked up yet is is the flashback to her own guilt it, her own accidental complicity which which relates to helen's point about the negative utopia looking backwards so there's a scene where uh, her daughter is, is is still alive in the scene and I think she asks to borrow her mother's car and, and they have a kind of typical teenager, adult confrontation and it's, you know, oh, mum. And, and the mother refuses to lend the daughter the car or something like this. So the daughter 
uh, goes out without the, that protection, and, it, and it's on this occasion that you you assume that she she was was raped and murdered in this horrific um, fashion. And of course, the implication there is that had had she had the mother only simply, and I think even the mother says something horrific, like you know, because they have a fight, like oh, I hope you get raped and murdered. I mean, some you know something insane, right? Like like this kind of uh, you know the worst possible thing you could imagine saying to somebody that you love, that you in fact love, and then the thing happens, right? So there is this kind of strange scene, and most of the film doesn't have this kind of retroactive quality, that you know, this flashback quality. So it's a kind of unusual scene. And and so one of the implications is surely that the billboards and the mother's kind of full frontal attack on everybody else quite rightly in some ways for not doing their job but at the same time as we've discussed sometimes there is no solution to to a problem or you can't find the answer even though you've, you people are trying their hardest nevertheless you want uh you want a solution you want um justice uh nevertheless i guess one of the things that's buried at the heart of her the mother's behavior is her own guilt right manifestly even though it's not her fault of course the rapist the the unnamed rapist murderer represents if you like something outside of the the frame the frame of the small town uh, in a way he represents the the problem of evil which is kind of unlocatable right and and the problem is then you end up with this attempt to try and locate as as benjamin says locate that evil in other people and you do so in terms of their supposed uh, bad intentions but most of the time people are not badly intentioned they don't they don't they don't have any intention at all they they just make mistakes or they they're thoughtless or you know and I, and I think a lot of the time you know we have a problem as a society or a culture in assuming malice when there is in fact stupidity and then sometimes vice versa like it's a very it's a kind of almost like a you know in Kant you have these sort of antinomies where there are two kind of problems that both seem true and you can never quite decide which one is which and that the whole stupidity malice problem is always like this like I think when often when we have a kind of recursive um, thought about where power resides or who is doing what or who's behind what we often end up uh, sort of stuck on this kind of antinomy of like oh is it stupidity or is it malice uh, and I think this is sort of played out very well in the in in this film um, in terms of trying to to relocate the problem of evil and trying to actually put it back into a situation where it might not even be be found because in a way that the kind of the the truly horrific causal uh um, incident or the, the the person behind this incident is nowhere to be found and it in fact <laughs> perhaps can't be found and and I do think the ambivalence of the ending is very interesting because it's the idea of the fungibility of evil well okay we can't find this rapist the one who, who murdered my daughter um, but perhaps we can find another one and then somehow we can expiate our need for justice um, through murdering uh, somebody else who's guilty of something similar, you know, and there's a, so there's a kind of whole sort of scapegoat thing uh, going on, as already mentioned. And so, I, yeah, I, 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 I suppose in these regards, I find I found the film quite interesting. But I, I wondered if it it could have been um, slightly more more subtly handled. And I, I, but I, but there is something kind of interesting then as to try and understand this film as a, as a film about class and 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 whether. Because we, we, we've watched quite a few films about poverty in America or economic deprivation in America, like the, the one about the bank recently. Um, 
And I wonder if there's something kind of formal about these films in the sense that they depict violence, which is also the violence of poverty or economic deprivation or, um, you know, relative marginalisation, right? So these small towns compared to big cities, let's say, of course, there's lots of poverty in big cities too, but they have a different kind of quality. Um, And there's much recent American cinema about these kind of non-massive places, like these small rural urban uh, you know, slightly urban towns, but largely kind of agricultural or or dispossessed, really, let's say, from the kind of um, thrust of modernity. Um, and in that sense, then <coughs> I um, I perhaps came to appreciate the sort of um, the unsubtleness, uh, the unsubtle qualities um, of the film. Uh, I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'm going to cough too much. Yeah, I, I really like that idea of um, that there is no solution, you know, um, and and there's a, a part of the drama is that um, one of the police officers, the sort of evil police officer, um, is convinced that he's found the culprit. And this is when he's sort of doing work for good and he sort of changed his attitude and he does everything he can to um, get the evidence required to lock down, you know, th- this culprit that he believes he's found that seems seems absolutely that it is the person and it turns out that it isn't um and there is no solution one of the things i find interesting about this film is that it was in contention for best picture and it was quite heavily the favorite for best picture and then there was kind of a turn against it among some film critics in the states in 2017. it's a film that was written before donald trump but came out after and because it came out after there was i think a set of people who felt that this film was not heavy-handed enough, that it didn't take (laughs) a side in the way that it should have. And so watching it now, you know, I think is if I were watching this film in in 2015, I might have Nina's take. But because the film came out in 2017, by the time it came out in 2017, it was like a last vestige Mm. of a kind of American film that tried to grapple with uh, contradiction and with there being uh, genuine values and sentiments on opposite sides of the cultural divide. Mm. Kind of uh, probably the last time I can remember a Hollywood film that really contended for for, uh, an Oscar that that took seriously the horror of uh, the mother's position, the horror of... uh, the, the police officer who's lost his, his mentor, uh, it, it takes you know, the horror of, of the dwarf who ha- is just trying to be taken seriously. Uh, you know, all, all of that is acknowledged in this film mm-hmm. in a way that would feel heavy handed ten, uh, 10 years ago, but five years ago was subtle and deft compared to where the culture was going. And now I think is very subtle and deft compared to where American culture is presently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I, in watching this film, I see a transformation in the kinds of films that we make. I think at this point, if, if that film came out in 2022, the reaction would be even more negative than in 2017. In 2017, you know, at the beginning, it, it could be the Oscar frontrunner, but by the time you actually got to the Oscars, there were a lot of people saying, oh, if this film wins, then something terrible has happened. If this film wins, then there's something wrong with the Academy that it would choose this film uh, in this year. And, and so uh, remembering that past, um, 
it made this film stand out to me as a kind of turning point moment. Mm -hmm. Most of the films that have been good in the last, in the years after this film came out have been foreign films. I can't think of very Mm -hmm. many American films after 2017 that were as good as this film. And this film is far from perfect. And Nina's right to say that it could be more subtle than it is. And we could be operating with a standard that from which this film would, would come in for some, some more criticism than I gave it. But we're so accustomed in the States to films that are so overwhelmingly one-sided that we're not, or at least I'm not inclined to hold it to the standard that perhaps I should. No, no, that's a, that's a really, really interesting point, Benjamin. I, I, I totally take the um, recent, I suppose, chronological um, picture uh, that you're presenting. And, and you're right, because because in a way, what's being depicted uh, sympathetically, albeit in a tough manner, is 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 the white working class and, and you know, in America. And um, you're right, I think, but by association at that time, everything became a kind of taboo in, in that regard. You know, the it's it was simply a much more black and white <laughs> picture you know it's it's if you're not for, with us you're against us and um you know we, we're living in the aftermath of that kind of uh unbelievably sort of divisive um logic um precisely the logic that the film is is designed to undermine so yeah i, I think it's actually a really important point that you you bring that up and i didn't remember or didn't know about the kind of you know, it's relative fortunes vis-a-vis the um, award and Trump election. Um, but that, that kind of makes a horrible, horrible sort of sense. <laughs> um, now, I was mm. going to say that, uh, funnily enough, the first time I watched it, when it first came out, I found it really heavy-handed. <laughs> and then and I actually didn't enjoy it. And watching it this time, I was like, wow, this is actually, I really did not read this film correctly when I last read it. Uh, when I last watched it and I found it much, much more enjoyable, much more powerful, but maybe it's just in the context of the fact that compared to films that are made today, there's been a huge decline and I found it much more nuanced. But when I watched in 2017, I was like, gosh, this is like so preachy, but actually I found that it wasn't now, but that's potentially just saying something about the films that are made now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that makes me, me wonder, let's, let's pretend that we're from before the Trump presidency. Mm. And let's let's try to what would make this film better? Let's try to hold it to the standard <laughs> that we've all forgotten about. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it was it, I, it, it was the, just the, the heavy handedness, I guess. Um, but, right, but like what what specific moments in the film are the moments of this heavy handedness and what should have been different in the film to give it that subtlety? Well, the funny thing is, is that I remember watching it the first time and feeling like it dealt with race in a way that I thought was um, slightly veering on the liberal, offensively reductive side. Mm. So I actually, I actually felt not that, you know, as a white person, I shouldn't have any thoughts about this probably, but that I actually thought that it was, um, it was not good enough as in, and most of this, this woke stuff, captures things at a level that's so oppositional and doesn't c- capture like the um, negative dialectic of like universality, right? And that this touches everybody of every class and every gender and race. And I felt that actually it was sort of a bit patronizing. Um, but yeah, less so this time. But I, that's something that I do remember feeling. Yeah, because the guy who replaces Chief Willoughby is an African-American uh, police chief. And this African-American police chief character is... Uh, a little flat insofar as he 
you know, uh, starts by firing the officer, which is the thing that, of course, needs to happen. But only the, the, uh, this new African-American police chief can do that. Prior to that, the guy is indulged and kept around and treated with kid gloves. And then once you have an African-American police chief, now the, the thing that always, of course, needed to happen, which is that this officer can't, can't be a police officer. He's way too much of a hothead for that job. That finally happens. Uh, and the guy is, is let go. There's also a scene in which the officer says to uh, the mom uh, that, that we're not all the enemy, you know. Uh, and, and the implication there, I think, is that because, it, well, not, not that it's implied in what he's saying, but I think that what the film is doing there is suggesting that if the police force was more racially diverse, that that in and of itself would mm -hmm. diminish what's wrong with the police. Yeah, and I, I did I do feel that the other two um, non-white characters were sort of felt like props and weren't fully developed characters. And, um, you know, there's sort of one sort of benevolent, supportive figure who witnesses a scene in the scene where the, I can't remember the name of this sort of bad police officer is attacking the person he suspects of um, rape and is sort of sort of watching it with a bit of, like oh my goshness, you know, as a as as if she's the she's the eyes of the more you know the mm. the moral. Is that the same woman who works in the shop? Yeah, with it the is, mother? and she's sort of like we read that scene through her eyes of the sort yeah. of like oh my gosh, yeah. And, and at one yeah. point, she's randomly arrested for like marijuana possession and held in jail for three days or something, and it's all very it's all very silly. And then she kind of comes out and runs and hugs her friend, the mother, her friend. And yeah, I, I think, I think I agree with, with Helen. That I think it was the racial aspect that, that seemed most clunky in this mm -hmm. to me. And, and maybe that's, that's what I meant by the heavy handedness or at least partly that, you know, as if, I, I don't know. It was almost like the unlikability of the mother was sort of tempered by her friendship with this with this nice black lady, and you know, so she's not all bad. Yes. And oh, black people like the mother, therefore she must not be such a bad person right, or right. such a difficult person. Right. Her crimes are okay because she's got black friends. Right, exactly. Whereas actually, a really more um, sophisticated film would have gone harder in on the unlikability because mm -hmm. if you think about like a character like Antigone I mean you know the true quest for justice is outside the law right like not only is it outside the law but it's outside of all social norms if you like mm -hmm. you know so Antigone's desire to bury her brother not only goes against the laws of the city but also against the desires of her family you know she's a kind of total pariah she's mm -hmm. completely ostracized by her desire to get justice you know, in this in this pure way, right? And and, and I think um, when we when we look at vengeance films, the ones that are truly uh, memorable, I think, are the ones where the the purity of the vengeance is such that it it doesn't matter what gets destroyed, including the person seeking vengeance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what a vengeance narrative really is. It's it's ultimately the destruction of everything in the name of something that lies outside of the fra the acceptable frame. And so, you know, to if they had made the mother correct, but horrible, like even more horrific, right? Mm -hmm. This would have been a really quite transgressive film. This is the thing. I feel like, in a way, though, that the the fact that she is not it, 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 okay, she, we they, they could have gone further. Filmmakers could have gone mm. further, but like it feels like that the black characters in this film are the non-universal subjects, and the white characters because they are 
complex, complicated, and a bit bad at least are you know have this sort of have the 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 nuance and sort of contradiction of of subjectivity that these prop characters don't have. Mm. One of the things that's difficult is is this character is played by Frances McDormand. The mother's played by Frances McDormand. And so she's going to be likable because she's Frances McDormand. I, I think true. it would be difficult to make that character what Nina's suggesting with Frances McDormand playing that character. Maybe I'm insulting Frances McDormand as an actor by saying that, but I but, just think she's too likable. Yeah, in the, in, the, in the casting, you bring a universe of kind of like inference on the part of the audience but mm. like sometimes you know the, what, what the roles that are the most celebrated are when when people really do have that complete transformation like charlie's there on and monster, monster or something yeah. like that you know but but again this is this is sort of it does have a comedic edge it's not mm-hmm. it's not an all-out kind of um morality play or, or tragedy or, mm. or what have you mm. Yeah, it does. It does play a lot for laughs. And I think in some ways that reflects the, you know, by that point, we were in the process of having this period end, but the kind of gritty early tens stuff in American cinema, where uh, extreme violence was played for laughs, uh, and played for laughs very frequently. And I think post Trump, it's become distasteful to do that. And there are fewer films that do it. There are still some especially franchises or material or shows that began early enough that they're, um, you know, they, they kind of get away with it on legacy. Mm-hmm. They're kind of grandfathered in, but we don't see a whole lot of new material that plays violence for laughs in precisely this way. Where do we see things going now? Because obviously, like, the fact that we're discussing how badly things have got you know, th- there has to be a shift at a certain point because otherwise we're just going to get, this is just going to be, cinema's well, going to end. We're, we're not enough like the audience. But do you think, what do you think is going to happen? Because I'm making a film ne- hopefully next year that is very, that's more in line with what Nina's talking about with an extremely unlikable character that the audience <laughs> is asked to identify with who does a crime that gets caught up in all sorts of, accidentally is caught up in all sorts of like um, cultural war issues without, it, you know the the intention being there and i am sort of like mm, i don't know if this is like if this like film as a genre can tolerate this kind of stuff anymore i yeah i mean i do i do wonder i mean i've been probably like quite a lot of people are slightly obsessed with the sam bankman fried thing lately and i know we've discussed it to some degree and i don't want to go into sort of the details of of, of it but there's something about let's just take him as a figure right so last night he did an interview for the new york times <laughs> in some undisclosed location i mean people are very surprised that this this man is has not yet been arrested right but he you know and i tried to listen to some of his uh his interview and it was it was very 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 strange because on the one hand you know it seems very clear that that he committed lots of fraud right like that he he literally you know did bad things with other people's money to the tune of billions of dollars um and and yet and, and okay we we think this is a terrible thing and and we would wonder at the kind of person who would do that and we would we would sort of think we would 
say, what kind of person would be able to do that, right? Like, is this person kind of sociopathic? Are they, uh, you know, again, to go back to the stupidity, malevolence question, you know, did this person know what they were doing? Did this person do it on purpose? Surely he must have understood that this was, you know, not an okay thing to do. But but the more the more I seem to read about him or watch him, the the more obscure <laughs> his own <laughs> character, his motivations become. And, and, you know, he's even making jokes on this New York Times stream where, you know, someone asks, uh, the interviewer asks him, like, do your, did, did your lawyers tell you to not come on this stream? And they were, he was like, yeah, they really didn't want me to do it. And then the audience laughs. And you're sort of like, are they encouraging this 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 person? Like, I don't know. So, so I suppose I'm very into. I mean, it's an old question, an old problem. But I'm, I, I I think I'm glad to hear you're making this film about somebody who's very unlikable because I think or very hard to understand because I I think this is one of the major problems, which is precisely the false solution is the idea that we can say, oh, this is a good person and this is a bad person, right? Because this black and white thinking, or because this person's a member of this group, therefore, you know, they're exempt from certain criticism, or because they are a member of this group, then they are responsible for all the world's ills. You know, we've seen far too much of that in-grouping and, and stereotyping and, and so on. And so I can't, I'm kind of very interested in figures that are almost like... uh uh, how to how to how to put it like um, opaque, like that we that have done uh, who've maybe done things that we would generally uh, agree are not good <laughs> for other people. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be violence, right? Like fraud is a white collar crime. Of course, it's ruined. I mean, it is a form of economic violence. You know, it's ruined lots of people's lives and so on. But what do we do with uh, this? Uh, let's say inability to comprehend the characters of people who do terrible things i suppose um without ourselves falling into the trap of of rendering them wholly uh evil or or something like that yeah i think part of the part of what we've been there's this angle to do with with race in this film and it is too heavy-handed with respect to that but i think yeah you know, i almost i think i did completely leave that whole aspect of the film out of my initial description because it wasn't what was in yeah. my head because the black characters are not really fleshed out characters. It, it didn't, it wasn't the thing that I, when I watched the film, even really put into my narrative of the film, yeah. I almost uh, looked past a lot of it in, in my initial description. The thing that I think is really heavy handed about this film is the fact that it has to make the characters likable <laughs> these characters who are doing these terrible things have to be likable so that the audience will play with the complexity. Right. And so it goes out of the way to make people who, if you met them in real life, you would not like, uh, likable. And I think that, uh, that the difficulty is that when you are in these situations where you really do have to suspend judgment, everything in front of you is telling you that this person is somebody you shouldn't like and that you should think of as an enemy everything in front of you. And by making, uh, you know, by, by showing us that this police officer has the confidence of Woody Harrelson and by saying that uh, the mom is, is Francis McDormand, it, it makes them just a little bit too compelling for us to really struggle with understanding in the way that we uh, often do in real life. That said, if you make them into just antagonistic, nasty, I, I, the, the trouble is film has tended to swing between, on the one mm -hmm. hand, making people who do very 
uh, horrific things out to just be evil characters and making them out to be anti-hero, you know, very sympathetic, even though they do bad things to the point where you identify with the bad things that they do because you like them so much. Think, you know, Breaking Bad, Brian mm. Cranston. You take this very likable actor who you associate with affable uh, roles from earlier in their career. And you put them as the anti-hero and you kind of steal valor from their previous roles. You know, the fact that Brian Cranston was Hal and Malcolm in the Middle before he's the character in Breaking Bad makes you uh, view him in this affable way and gives the character all this rope. Mm. You know, and we regard a lot of that you know, anti-hero stuff as, as very good. Uh, you know, it, it's, it gets a lot of praise. Breaking Bad gets a lot of praise. A lot of these shows and movies get a lot of praise. But there is... A higher level that we did not achieve in that period in which you neither portray them as as a thoroughgoingly evil character, nor do you portray them as as so likable that they have to be played by Hugh Laurie or Brian Cranston or whoever <laughs> the wonderful uh, actor is. Uh, and that's that middle space of, of making the audience really deal with the fundamental unlikableness, but humanness of the people who do these kinds of things. Uh, it's very hard to get an audience to want to sit through that. It's not necessarily entertainment at that stage. And I think that's part of why we haven't been able to go there mm. and why so often these anti-hero narratives are full of comic relief and full of dark humor to yeah. take the edge off it and keep the anti-hero character likable in a way that isn't realistic fundamentally. You know, Kevin Spacey in House of Cards <laughs> another, uh, would be another example mm. of that. Uh, and that's what's heavy-handed about this film. It, it has to, to get you to play with the tension, make the characters too likable. And then the other characters, the minor characters, are flat to further emphasize the depth and likability of these uh, of mm -hmm. these main characters. But this, yeah, but this is why I think this dialectical move, shift, you know, if we're speculating about, you know, Helen's future films or future films that should be made or with the direction we would like to see cinema go in. I think, I think it's like the, it's, it's the incomprehensibility. I mean, you know, I'm interested in it. It's, it's, it's what happens when we actually can't understand, uh, somebody actually, or that they remain a mystery to, to us despite, uh, us knowing epistemologically or being able to morally judge them or whatever, but we still don't, because the truth is, is there is a, a kind of unknowable kernel to everybody and everything. Um, and it, it is very hard to depict, but I think it's, 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 uh, it's necessary to depict this actually, because the moment we understand that there is this unknowable kernel, even in the people or especially in the people that we love the most, you know, even the mere fact that they are not us, <laughs> but they very much exist, uh, in their otherness, um, um, you know, albeit in proximity to us, we will never fully know them. And I, and I think, you know, if you think about films like Belle du Jour and maybe some of the kind of um, more experimental films in the 60s and 70s, a lot of them were maybe a bit about this kind of unknowability um, in a slightly earlier age. So, I mean, there's inevitably going to be a Sam Bankman Freed <laughs> film. I hope it's a good one. Um, but I, yeah, I like I, like I say, I'm really... I, I find it really interesting how intriguing it is to, to, to me and to, I guess, a lot of other people at the moment, like trying to get to the bottom of this person's character, you know, like they, they ostensibly seem to be telling you everything, but you, but you understand nothing. Like I understand less than I did. The more I read about and watch him and try to hear what he's saying and work out what he thought he was doing, like it, it just makes less and less sense um, somehow. <laughs> 
I think there's with him, there's a lot of overlap between the way he behaves and what people in the crypto space like, Mm. which is a kind of of irreverence and lack of regard for the rules or norms or, or usual ways in which people do business or people trade stuff. And the yeah, kind of obvious issue with that is that if you have someone who's managing many billions of dollars who doesn't have any regard for the usual rules, then they're going to do things with the money that they shouldn't be doing. Hmm. <laughs> but in crypto, it was considered a virtue to be someone who didn't care about the rules. And it still is considered a virtue. I mean, they, they view the banking system and the regulatory system as evil or corrupt mm. in some way. And so then they get behind people who don't follow rules or regulations, mm-hmm. don't understand or don't or or pretend not to understand why banking regulations exist or why currencies are run or operated the way that they're run. I mean, th- for the most part, these are people who don't understand why the Federal Reserve exists apart from attributing malice to the people who created it. Uh, is, so they yeah. don't understand why you would create a central bank or what purpose a central bank would serve. Mm. Uh, apart from some villainous purpose. Uh, and to, to have a, an interesting critique of central banks, you have to engage with the reasons why they exist uh, on their own terms. And then you can develop you know, a, a more uh, interesting kind of political economy critique of the technocratic central banking system. But these people haven't done this. They, they view the Federal Reserve in a kind of conspiratorial way. And so they're, they're not able to really penetrate uh, yeah. And so, of course, they're attracted to people who don't care about the norms mm-hmm. or the rules. And those people, of course, are the kinds of people who rip them off. I mean, this is sort of this adolescent kind of anarchic, anarchistic, utopian. Libertarian. Yeah, it's very utopian. And it's like, oh, if only it wasn't. It's like it's like when people read Freud as like repression. It's like if it only if only it wasn't for repression, then it would be fine. It's like <laughs> this repression is absolutely necessary. There's no there there beyond repression. You know, it's like. The repression is only bad insofar as it's like pathological or it's used as a way to repress potentially like all kinds of things. But, you know, there's there's a primary repression that's necessary and that there are like there are systems that are that are needed. But it, it reminds me a little bit of like the scandals with televangelism and how um the issue there, and it's interesting because as well, like the Sam Bankman Freed thing, it's like, has he got the the, the same amount of ire as like some normal kind of fraud fraudster would get or or does it sort of like land more softly because it's in this sort of alternate universe where they're operating with this kind of alternate logic even though it is the same sort of money after all that's being affected but you know in in the televangelistic world it was like you know a belief in god or that like god had uh, given people you know god was on the side of the people running these businesses that sometimes you know failed or whatever but um, but it's the same thing. I mean, it's very like religious and like the worst sense of the world thinking, this sort of anarchistic utopianism. And, I'm, and, and that's not to say like I I actually don't understand cryptocurrency. So I don't I don't know like if I personally have any criticism of it. But like in terms of it's the, an existential yeah. question for yeah. the crypto people whether whether this guy is a bad apple or whether the issues with him speak to issues with the whole of crypto mm-hmm. because they viewed him as their JP Morgan, their savior figure who comes and bails out any crypto exchange that's in trouble. And now he himself is in trouble. So either it's got to be something about him personally, he's got to be the problem person, or 
because so much of the crypto world was caught up with this guy and his his enterprise, uh, it means that there's something fundamentally wrong with the whole project. And because there's still a significant amount of money in crypto, that cannot be acknowledged because that will destroy the value of what remains of it. So it, it's got to be about him. He's got to be the bad guy. I mean, capitalism always, always tries to do this. When there's a crisis, you find the bad apples, the people who didn't follow the rules, the people who you know, just just you just need a cop on the beat to impose the rules. You know, if only crypto were you know, regulated like regular banking, well, then it wouldn't be crypto. The thing that they liked about it was that it wasn't regulated like regular banking because they don't trust the banks. They don't trust the banking system. So I, I do think that there's deeper issues with that whole crypto space that are uh, there in the character of, you know, of this guy. But if you are still in the crypto space, if you still have money in that space, then you need it to be the case that this guy is just a problem guy, uh, that he just ran the company wrong and that it's possible for crypto to operate without this guy. But the only way that you would get a, a, a cryptocurrency that doesn't, you know, cryptocurrencies that don't do this kind of stuff would be to make them like the regular banking and financial system, which would be to make them totally uninteresting to the people who are currently interested in them. Yeah. And, you know, as you say, the thing is, it's like they, 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 they think banking is bad. It's like banking is bad and capitalism is bad. But it's like, you know, there's no solution in just, in just thinking that there's a utopian balance without the banks. It's like, no, there's still capitalism. And there's still like, it's still a disaster. And it's, you know, it's worse. I don't know. I, yeah. But then I think we need like a sort of psychoanalysis of crypto. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. It's like it, the attractiveness of this figure and the whole thing is precisely needs to be sort of dialectically understood in relation to the rules. I hadn't quite made that 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 leap yet i suppose and i yeah i i think that's i think that's right it's still, and it still leads back to this question of what is the attraction to these things right in and of itself right like, like, let's say crypto represents something mm-hmm. like an alternative or if not an alternative a separate sphere or different you know way of doing things that's kind of uh uh, yeah, de-, de or unregulated, non-centralized, decentralized, you know, all these, all these sorts of words that get thrown around. Um, it, it, yeah, there, there is a kind of utopian promise in, in crypto, even though obviously if we, if, if, if things collapse, there wouldn't be any electricity for, <laughs> for crypto to mean anything, which is, which well, is that, a, a very yeah, stupid That's why point. it's the reverse coin of gold. It's the <laughs> yeah. reverse coin of gold because gold is a kind of paleo economy. It's I don't like the modern economy, <laughs> yeah. so I want a utopia in the past. Crypto is the utopia in the future. Once you're over the utopia of the past, then you commit to the utopia of the future. So it's all the people who 20 or 30 years ago would have been heavily into gold and silver and, and keeping collections of, of precious metals in their basements who after the commodities bubble of the early 10s can't be uh, doing that, can't talk themselves into that, but uh, they can have a kind of faith in innovation or the possibility mm-hmm. of new, and so it becomes a future-oriented thing. Yeah. But also, you know, there's always, um, you know, the, as, as the, the rate of profit has declined and declined and declined, and there's more and more and more of a boot on, on the neck of anybody who isn't like a shareholder or even shareholders, you know, they're small shareholders, but it's like a billionaire, basically, you know, it's, it's like, a, it's a small escape route. It's this possibility. And I know like so many, and this is not to say like, maybe if I had the money to have done it, I would have put 
because it was it seemed quite obvious to a lot of people that there was going to be a massive like rise in it over you know 2020 or whatever and it was it was huge and lots of people i know put loads of money in and of course it's like is this a stupid thing to do? Well, probably not if it's going to go up in value, you know, like I don't a lot know. Of people, um, a lot of people did well out of it, but it, it's premised on getting out. Yeah, at the right time. Yeah, you have to you and have to, you have to yeah. recognize that it's a scam. Absolutely. That it's yeah. a pyramid scheme. Go in early and then get out before it blows up. And the people who viewed it that way did very well out of it at the expense of the people who, who believed in uh, it. didn't have the wherewithal. And, and this is the thing about you know, libertarian capitalism. It's I'm smart and you're stupid. So yeah, therefore, I deserve to get your money because I'm better with money than you because I'm smarter than you are. But yeah, uh, it, it takes crypto it. favored the people who could see that it was that it worked like this and played it. it rely, yeah, it rely, the thing is, though, it's. It, it worked for yeah the cynics cynics who, who understood how it worked, but then it it relied on people who wanted this one magical escape from capitalism. Yeah, and, that and the people who made yeah. a ton of money were willing to exploit the people who were vulnerable and wanted an escape. So you had to be smart enough to see how it worked, but also willing to exploit the people who couldn't see that. Uh, and and that's what that's the combination of traits that it took to do really well out of this thing. So you look at someone like Sam uh, Sam Bankman Fried. He was smart enough to see how it worked, but also very willing to exploit the people who couldn't see what he saw. And that made him you know the richest guy out of the bunch. It's that combination of traits. Yeah, and I guess I wonder what the next thing will be. There'll always be something that people will try to. And those are the those are the same traits that mark the people who drove the housing bubble before mm. 2008. You know, it's the same kind of thing. And the system rewards that behavior until it doesn't. Anyway, we're at about an hour, so we're going to go over to the B side. Uh, so if you listen to us on Patreon, you can join us over there. But either way, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.